Have you boys ever killed anybody? Oh, you're reading a paper about some wife doing away with her husband. Child murderer. Knifing in a tavern brawl. These are crimes of passion. Crazy people off their rocket. Then there's a trigger-happy hoodlum. The kid that kills a gas station attendant because he can't open the cash register fast enough. That's another type crazy person. Both types eventually get caught. The only type of killing that's safe is when a stranger kills a stranger. No motive. Nothing to link the victim to the executioner. Now, why would a stranger kill a stranger? Because somebody's willing to pay. It's business. There are a lot of people around that would like to see lots of other people die a fast death. Only they can't see to it themselves. They got conscience, religion, families. They're afraid of punishment here or hereafter. They can't be bothered by any of that nonsense. To a People's History of Violence, the podcast where we do deep dives in histories, assassinations, affairs, assassination, crimes, coups, conspiracies, cover-ups, terrors, and trials. I'm your co-host, Isaac. I'm your co-host, Peter. And Peter, where was I? Oh, yeah. Uh, we were going to talk about the actual content of the podcast. <laughs> we're bringing it all back home, folks. Yeah, it's part three, the final one. Yeah. The Clotter Murders. We're not in Kansas anymore, Toto, except... We are. Kansas, we're, we're literally literally Kansas, Kansas yeah. is the main 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 thing here. So, listeners, in this episode, we hope to bring the kind of disparate and suggestive threads that we've built in the prior two episodes on this paradigmatic true crime uh, required reading myth brought about by Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. We've tried to kind of pick apart the notions of guilt and innocence and evil and, and bring to the forefront like real factors that came up to play. The economics of the farms that grow larger and put out other farmers and make them kind of travel to the cities or wander around like itinerant uh, drifters, quote unquote. The Kansas prison system with its own dark economy and deprivation and torture and but besides demolishing the picture that was given by the official story of the Kansas Bureau of Investigation and Capote and others, uh, what we will be left with instead, listeners, uh, particularly after examining the new evidence, is not like a less compelling, boring story, in my view. In fact, it's far more interesting. If you look at the entire timeline of all the events that happened with this case, what you don't have is a romantic morality tale constructed out of facts. What you have is actually something like uh, a real-life hard-boiled mystery with hired trigger men, secret affairs, shady insurance deals, uh, and documented rough, shady, violent characters meeting in rusted-out cards and overcast sky fields. Switch cars, straw purchase guns, kidnapping plots. It's a it's a slimier, grayer uh, Hammond or Chandler. Although, mm-hmm. Peter, you'd have to confirm the Chandler. I've only read Hammond. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, no, Chandler. I'm, I'm a schmuck. Yeah. So I, I think the starting point for tying this all together is, is how they got, how our killers, Hickok and Smith, 
got to the clutter farm in the first place. Right. Because if you didn't know it was there, it wouldn't necessarily be obvious. And that's exactly where we left off in last episode. Uh, we left off last episode, Hickok, the remaining inmate at KSP Lansing, the Devil's Front Porch, had basically gotten a job to rob a house and get a safe from his cellmate at the time, William Floyd Wells, who will later become a rat and inform on these two guys. Although, you know, there's worse ways to rat. <laughs> Kill an entire family. For sure. But that said... How Wells himself got this information is actually not really illustrated in Capote because Wells hadn't worked for Clutter for 11 years, hadn't been to the new house, wouldn't know where a safe was, and complicating things even further, there was no safe. But to even find that farm, Wells had to get the information from somewhere. And that missing someone, the fact that another person would have had to have given that job to Wells is the first big clue in showing that this was a case of hired killers, that this was a job. Yeah, it's kind of, it's a it's an absence that's also a presence, right? Yeah. It's like how you could infer the existence of celestial bodies from how other smaller celestial bodies move around them, even if you can't see them. Yes. And that, that's definitely something like a shadow cast over the case. The other prong of this, though, is the much more direct, just outright claims that Richard Hickok made in his letters to Mac Nations when they were collaborating on a book that was supposed to be titled High Road to Hell. Hickok says things like, all my life I heard I wasn't ever going to do anything that amounted to much, but wait till we find these people, then they'll know, and I'm getting paid for it too. And another thing like this, we were running short on time and didn't look the house over or tear it up like we should. It was almost two o'clock and our meeting with Roberts was about an hour away. We didn't want to miss that. 5,000 bucks is a lot of dough. These little excerpts, and there's more apparently missing besides, were repetitions on a theme that was in Hickok's letters that he had a job, a meeting with Roberts, received diagrams from Roberts, and that the point of the job was one, to get a safe, but also to kill Herbert Clutter, and that Herbert Clutter's family was collateral damage. Now, uh, I would be the first to say, and I think and Peter agrees with me on this, that this upside-down account of the crimes, if it just came from the mouth of Richard Hickok, the fucked up as he is, and admit a liar, we would be right to completely discount it. After all, he said himself that he wanted this book to come out to give him money for an mm. appeals lawyer, because those mm. previous appeals lawyers weren't doing a good job mm. on the higher one. So, and there's also like a completely distorted, macho, frankly, like sickening aspect to his letters when he's recalling the stuff. He just talks about whether he has the guts to do this and just mm. killing an unarmed family right. in their home. We're not, we're not fans. Not fans of Mr. Hickok, even though we've taken pains to explain how he got where he got. Right. However, it, so if it was just his word, bullshit. And uh, that's kind of where it stood when the Wall Street Journal originally published like an account of these letters in, mm -hmm. in the early 2000s. But rather, it's, it's evidence that's in the Kansas Bureau of Investigation files, and particularly the investigative notes of Harold Nye and others, that peeled the layers back of years of myth-making and showed that there is actually real evidence to corroborate 
that this happened, namely sightings of the killers meeting up with a flesh and blood person, not a fantasy, before the murders, meeting up with them after the murders, on the route out of town, and being cited by multiple credible witnesses. So I intend here to make the case that this was a murder for hire gone bad. And not because it satisfies my own conceptions about why most crimes happen, that it's the dragging power of economic forces that pushes people in these situations, uh, but because the evidence actually takes us to this kind of hard-boiled reality, hmm. uh, even if it doesn't give us all the definitive answers. All right, well, why don't we, uh, so that's a bit, pretty big claim. Let's, um, yeah, let's see if I can back it up. Let's see if you can back it up, but first, let's kind of recap for the listener, because there's a lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have you. Yeah. In, in classic uh, pulp detective novel fashion, what we've tried to do is link up these two worlds mm. of high living, upstanding, Herb Clutter living on his big farm. And he's down and out, probably doesn't even hit it. Below the dirt, brain damaged felons mm. who end up getting brought on as his eventual killers. In and the place well. where, where every world always the you know uh tahar de, de chardin said everything that rises must converge but i would say that when you're dealing with these uh worlds these disparate worlds it's where every world meets is at the failure point yeah and that's exactly what that, that's well said that's exactly the failure point here so on our last episodes we showed that herb clutter built up his very large operation farm in in one of the largest in Holcomb, Kansas, in this period of agricultural transformation, where through government funding and networks of private banks and partnerships with government, farmers who were able to take advantage of that were bringing on lots of machinery, fertilizer, and so on. And if you didn't grow big, if you were too small and were reliant on muscle labor, mules, or couldn't get the credit, or you took too much risk and got bankrupt, you got out. And that is why the number of farms went down dramatically in the 1950s. But he was the winner or one of the winners of this type of thing, at least uh, it seemed. But in the by the late 50s, as we talked about in our addendum episode, and on that first one, Herb Clutter and the kind of high risk that he and any other well-off farmer had to take every year to make the numbers on a big farming operation like this uh, ran into some challenges. Among other things, a plane crash on his property. Uh, some of his workers got into a multi-car pileup lawsuit, and finally a blizzard took out a thousand of his sheep and or cattle. Added on top of all of that, the conservative Republican government in Washington and with the Department of Agriculture headed by Ezra Taft Benson, uh, even drier than her mm. clutter Mormon, yeah. wanted to pull the what they saw as the socialistic supports mm. out of farm pricing, and thus her clutter would have a really diminished smaller check every month and every year for the crops and cattle that he put out there. So facing this clutter hitting something like a financial wall. Uh, sold off at the direction of his uh, friend, business partner, and banker, Ken Lyon, about a third of River Valley Farm. And mm. that 
part has never been disclosed in Capone's work. Nevertheless, even after selling this off in the spring of 1959, Herb Clutter is still like kind of under an aura of imminent doom. He's surly in the accounts of his own daughter's words. He's smoking, even though he believes that smoking is a sin and no one should ever do it and no one's ever seen him smoking before. And even though he's been encouraged for a couple of months to do so, he finally takes out a life insurance policy with double indemnity in case he should, say, be murdered uh, the day of his death, or rather the daytime before he died. Mm. It's with all of that in the background that we came across Floyd, William Floyd Wells, who is a former employee of Clutter from 11 years prior. I think on an episode previous, I said nine years by accident. From 11 years prior, he's one of these farmhands brought on by Clutter seasonally, but notably, as Gary McAvoy pointed out, though Clutter was running operations year-round, Wells didn't stay for that. And uh, it suggested, uh, and there's also rumors picked up by people like a used car salesman in Holcomb, Kansas, that Wells had been fired and that he would just be among many employees, or at least uh, more than a few employees, were fired by Herb Clutter for things as innocuous as drinking a beer. Or smoking. Or smoking. Or one can imagine with Wells, maybe uh, indulging in a little like crime. Mm. Wells, however, turned to a, a life of uh, more extensive crime in what we discovered in the last episode was a series of, of capers where he was stealing lawnmowers and selling them off potentially across state lines. However, Wells, while in prison, begins trying to sell off a job in June of 1959 to both Richard Hickok and two other prisoners. So as Clutter's life is going down the toilet, yes, Wells starts selling the job to burgle his house. Yes, and he sells this job as one to break into Clutter's house and take a safe, which is supposed to be stuffed full of cash. Mm. Now, Wells says that his price for this job is, you know, whenever you get around to it, whenever you get the chance, $1,000 you should kick back to me here, still serving time in, in KSP Lansing. I've always found this part to be the most unbelievable of yeah. Wells' tale. That doesn't seem like the kind of thing a, a criminal job setter upper, which I feel like I should know the name for that, given that I've watched a lot of Michael Mann movies, but... I figure, I figure, you know, a jail-bound seller of jobs, a procurer of criminal talent would want something up front. Yeah, um, you don't have much leverage to get $1,000 back to you in jail. Yeah, so these don't just, seem like... very altruistic. And yeah, they, they don't seem like the kind of guys who you can rely on to, you know, come back after their crime and put it in your commissary. So this, this is one thing that already struck me, as you can imagine as being something that showed that Wells has someone on the outside. Mm. Someone, obviously, who gave him the information that could help Hickok actually get to the farm where he wasn't working at the time. He didn't actually go into that house. Mm. He worked for Clutter, but not in that place. And someone who could potentially have the leverage to actually get a 1000 to Wells for the um, referral, mm. you might say. The finder's fee. The finder's fee. Oh, I guess it wouldn't be a referral because somebody else had to found it in order to tell him about it. Yeah. Because he never saw that house. Like um, the broker fee. Yes, yes. Well, Wells did find 
a taker on this job in the form of Richard Hickok. Richard, as we talked about last episode, was a hot car guy. He had gotten into both a, a few burglaries, but as was a bit of kind of an extension of his family trade as a mechanic, he became a stolen car man, including taking them across state lines, changing plates. This was his specialty. He could boost a car, he could hotwire it, he could make it more anonymous. Hickok brought in Perry Smith, his former cellmate, who, with a much more violent past, uh, including at one point he bragged about killing a black guy in Las Vegas with a chain, although Capote took pains to make that seem like it was uh, cleared and not real. Not so sure about that, but I have no evidence. Smith, however, had a, a long history of explosive violence while he was a soldier, including something like five court martial proceedings. Right. Breaking, throwing Japanese cops off bridges and so on. And racking a Japanese cafe. Now, one thing that we didn't talk about last episode, because they didn't want it to be too much of a distraction or at least a major burning thing that, that would be hard to take an eyes off of, is Richard Hickok's uh, admitted pedophilia. Now, not mm. like as a proud thing, but he did say to prison psychiatrists that kind of, it seemed like as part of like a kind of like generalized like hypersexuality, mm. like after his car accident, he started going after young girls. And mm. even in the course of this criminal run, this kind of like six week reign of terror, like, he tries to take aside young girls, and it's pretty sick, fucked up shit. Yeah. Now, I, again, am not a neurologist, but this is actually this kind of, like, hypersexuality that turns into pedophilia is apparently something that can happen with certain types of traumatic brain injuries. Yeah, and he reports that it mostly came up after. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There are... Like KBI agents and and sheriffs, people who are like, well, Hickok was always like that because his first wife was sixteen. Well, he was like nineteen at right. the time, and it's nineteen yeah. fifties Kansas, so right. that that doesn't strike me as odd as when he's later on trying to entice like an eight year old girl. Mm -hmm. But these are the people who took up the job. I mean, notably, two other guys passed up right. Floyd and you'll notice that these guys aren't exactly like Highline burglars. No, right. They haven't shown any particular aptitude for serious theft or you know anything involving skill. And I mean, my understanding is that in the world of criminals, uh, you know, home invasion robberies are considered pretty risky and a sign often of maybe you're more doing it for the violence and the violation of it than you are necessarily for the profit. Right, as opposed to, say, like, commercial burglary. Right, yeah, sort of yeah breaking into, you know, a jewelry store. When it, it's it's definitely a more, like, low-class thing. Yeah. I don't even, my understanding is that it's not even so much a respect thing. Like, it's not like, like they won't respect you for it. It's just, like, pretty risky yeah. for, for you know, risk and reward. It probably less risky and more of a reward back then when more people kept cash in their homes yeah as opposed to today but still it's it means there's definitely a huge risk of just getting shot oh yeah uh, especially in rural kansas thing. right but both hickok and smith had burglaries on their record yeah it's not the job you send your best men if you were like a crime boss which right i'm not saying wells was, but yeah right although wells is a is a kind of step up on right oh yeah for sure. and sales but both of these guys smith and hickok were definitely trying to graduate 
as it were, to higher levels of crime. They had plans to go ahead and take the money that they would get from this job, whether it was $5,000, $10,000 that was supposedly in the safe or amounts that we'll talk about later on here. Uh, they wanted to use it to go ahead and buy little motorboat in Mexico, begin taking divers out, that sort of thing, operating it as like a pleasure thing, and then building connections that they could eventually smuggle drugs. I say. Which would be serious money. Right. But maybe we should now turn to what was the job supposed to be? Right. Because this is something that's like kind of bogged in the devil me because at, at first, Capote's story seems to have an obvious thing. Wells tells Hickok about the safe. Mm -hmm. Hickok goes there. There is no safe. The job goes wrong. Mm. And uh, they begin killing the family. Yeah. That, that's, that's the standard account. I mean, there's variations on that. But the odd part about it is that when you look at the KBI files, Wells insists to no end on the safe and gives like a vivid description and right. insists that he helped with it. He's, he's already snitching. Yeah. So if he had sent them in with the expectation of not, uh, of telling them there was a safe, but there wasn't a safe, why wouldn't he just say that? Like, yeah, like what, what was the point? Also, like, how is he supposed to get paid? Right. If there's no safe. And, and I mean, the, the way that this is resolved is that the, the Wells job is not a job at all. It's just Wells, like, mouthing off to mm. Dick Hickok. That's the way it's resolved in the standard story. But here's Hickok's description of what he heard from Wells, as he wrote out later in his confession. He hears that this guy, meaning Clutter, was a big rancher and had done a lot of seasonal hiring, especially at harvest time. Wells went on to elaborate how he worked for Clutter in 1954, I think. Actually, it was 1948. And had worked for him for several months. During this time of his employment, Clutter built a new home and had installed a wall safe. The safe was in an office in the west room of the house on the first floor. Being as Clutter did a lot of hiring, buying, selling, and traveling on business, he kept large sums of money on hand at all times. He kept 5000 all year and as much as 10000 at harvest time. Later on in his uh, his letters to Mac Nations, where he goes into detail about his thinking during the crime, he says, I took the diagrams, studied them. I asked Wells how the safe was anchored in the wall and if it could be removed and opened elsewhere. He then described how the safe was put in the wall, and I asked him if he was sure. He said he worked for Clutter when the house was built and watched the safe installed. But, of course, later... Hickok actually alludes to getting the diagrams and where the safe was in the house uh, from someone else. Mm. Just like the diagram Roberts had given me showed, a hallway led off to the left, and on the left of this was the bedroom. All of which is actually kind of important because Mr. Clutter actually lived in a separate bedroom uh, from his wife, and it was actually near the office where the safe theoretically was. Wells himself, even when the KBI gave him the opportunity to say that like, oh, like, I don't know, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe mm -hmm. it wasn't a wall safe. Maybe there was no safe in the house. And Hickok just pulled up on something, was violently insistent. We employed Wells, quote, won't back up an inch on his statement regarding the safe, which he said was in the den or the office located in the basement of the old clutter farm home. Mm -hmm. In this statement, which I took this morning, this is um, Alvin Dewey talking, the KBI investigator. 
being signed by Wells and witnessed by Warden Hand, Deputy Sherman Krause, every opportunity was given to Wells to wiggle out of his statement about the safe, even suggested that perhaps he was mistaken and that the money was locked in Mr. Clutter's desk, but he wouldn't change his mind. He got insistent, <laughs> he, says, he got insistent hell. He got insistent as hell when I suggested he could be mistaken about the safe. And he says, now Vic, Vic Ursic, a hand, uh, who's actually the head of all the farm hands on Clutter's farm, knows the safe was there. And if it isn't there now, he probably helped move it out as Vic was going to move it into the house after the Clutters moved into their new house. So it's not just a, a vivid description of the safe. We actually have two different descriptions of the safe and where yeah. it is. Wells' description is all about the safe in the old house, yeah. which he couldn't have guided Hickok to at all. Right. And it's a it's he's insistent on this is what it looks like. It's this big, heavy safe that requires people to move. Hickok has this description of an entirely different safe from Wells. It's a wall safe that goes in. Mm-hmm. So I know this is a lot of confusion here. And, and what to make of this, I think, is obviously either there was a safe or there wasn't. Everyone who worked with Clutter said that he didn't actually keep cash on hand. He wrote out checks for absolutely everything, even down to as little as a dollar. Mm. But even if there was a safe, you know, as against Capote, Wells could not have possibly known where that safe was in the new house and could not have been accurate in giving direction as to where that was to Hickok. Mm. We actually know from Hickok's known kind of routing through the house that he went right this way he went to Clutter's bedroom mm-hmm. where he was sleeping and then to the study so he did know what the house looked like yes i mean the, the kbi investigators who interviewed him in las vegas when he's first giving his uh admissions confession were just astounded at how well he knew the house hmm. and this is like let's see this is december 30th 1959 so this is uh this is oh well over a month afterwards yes and he was doing that at night in the dark mm-hmm. with just flashlights and he knows the directions yeah. around the house. Now, if Wells made up the whole stage story wholesale, like let, let's just say like Wells just made up the story to kind of sweeten the job, right? He mm-hmm. wants Hickok to go to the house for some purpose. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's mad at clutter, his planes of his alternative life. Why insist on there being a safe to the KBI? Right? If this safe is just made up, mm-hmm. Why insist that, like, he saw it down there in 1948? Right. I mean, it, it would seem that the accurate house information, at, at least as far as where to go within the house, would have had to come from whoever the source of the job is, <laughs> to Wells, <laughs> and then from Wells to Hickok. And Wells maintained that he was the source of the job. Wells maintained that he was the source of the job, but that it was be... an accidental source, right? Yes. He was we... just talking. Right, right. And we can, but we can infer the that there's a, another job source behind him due to uh all the inconsistencies right. in Wells' story in terms of how he would know the layout of the new house that he had never been to, how he was gonna get his thousand dollars after the fact, etc. Yeah, and not just the inconsistency of the story, but the fact that he was able to, someone was able to provide Hickok yes. with this information. Yes, which he and, had no access to. Others. And if it wasn't Wells, then it had to have been Wells kind of carrying that information to Hickok. If that, that info, at least would have, whether it's false or true, would have included 
that the safe was in the wall of the study. Yes. Now, there are like a couple of scenarios, I think, that we could use to, to illustrate this. So uh, suppose that Capote's wrong and that these people around Clutter are wrong. Like it's actually like a little bit of a secret safe mm. or it's a safe of things they don't want to talk about. Oh, you figure they would have combed the house right. in the investigation and there'd be notes saying there was a safe, no? Yeah, no, you would figure that definitely if they found a safe. Right. But suppose that there was a safe and it okay. was taken in oh, the right. job. Okay. So this is counterfactual. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And potentially factual. But right. but like let's just suppose. Okay, okay. Let's just speculate. Let's just for a moment speculate, shall we? So if the job was for just the safe to get it and then bring it to an associate, mm -hmm. right? To crack it open, get the stuff inside. So there's one where the safe exists. Yeah. It was the job that Wells sent them on was to legitimately to get that safe for the monetary purpose. Yes. And they didn't find it or they did find it. Or they did find it. And, and then they... just killed the people anyway. Killed that family anyway because they're crazy assholes and then disposed of the safe according to the deal or however, whatever else they would have done. Yeah, that would that would definitely be one scenario. And another scenario would just be a variation on that. Mm -hmm. Wells told them that there's the safe. Uh, he's really just relaying information from his own job source who knows where the safe actually is in the house. And the job is also to kill Herbert Clutter. The, mm -hmm. the safe is just like an extra icing on the cake. Yeah, a way to get them in there. Yeah. Right, because it reminds me a little bit of the end of The Usual Suspects where Kaiser Soze has them raid that drug dealership, you know, against huge odds. You know, there's tons of armed gunsels there. And he says, look, you can, well, I'll let you off. You know, I, I get the money you, or I get the Coke, you get the money or whatever it is. And then, you know, Gabriel Byrne is, is running around the ship being like, after he kills all those guys, being like, there is no Coke. I've been in every goddamn ring. There is no coke there is no fucking coke because you know kaiser soze actually want to go kill a dude yeah it's just a, it was just about the killing that actually is 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 very close to a scenario that i'm about to illustrate but mm. like let's still suppose the safe you can cut my whole thing no no no, 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 no to, to paste it paste it to that scenario strongly um there is one more scenario where the safe exists however and that's Suppose the safe existed in the past. Mm. Wells knows this, mm -hmm. and so, whoever gave him the information of how to get around the clutter house, someone who has more recent familiarity with the clutter house, mm -hmm. says, oh yeah, and there's a safe in there too, just like the one that you used to use, or that you, you remember, like Vic Ursic put it in right back 11 years ago, mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily exist any longer. Right. Uh, my favorite scenario, though, is... Much more close to what you're talking about with the usual suspects, mm -hmm. Peter. Wells or his associate made up the story of the safe to deny the killers more than a nominal share of the payout from the hit job. Mm. As in, the killers were initially paid some money and told they would get a cut of, say, $5,000 on delivery of the safe from the clutter household. Uh, $1,000 would go back to Wells at Lansing. And then, oh no, surprise, there is no safe. Whoops, mm. sorry. Keep this consolation money. You should go lay low in Mexico for a while. It's crazy you couldn't find that safe. Mm. This Did you seems... follow the map? <laughs> Didn't you follow the map? Didn't you follow the diagram? 
the the danger for this scenario, I I think, is that that's a pretty dangerous game to play. Yeah, two people who just they might come back and murdered at least one dude. Yeah, and yeah, might resort to violent means to get the full extent of what they were promised. Mm. But that brings us to kind of one other thing, which is the amount that they thought they were going to get paid. Now, in the standard KBI Capote account, they're going in there, uh, Hickok and Smith, to get potentially five to $10,000 It's going to be in the safe. Failing that, they go ahead and they try to rob the house, right? They only find like a little less than $50. But weirdly, this amount of $1,000 from the job or that they were supposed to get keeps coming up over and over. Mm. And it doesn't fit with either of them getting a safe that has at least $5,000. Mm. It doesn't fit with what they said later on, which is that they only got $50. Mm. So here's what I mean. Before even leaving for to go do the murder, before leaving Hickok's house, uh, their their family farm in Olathe, Kansas, and driving all the way west to the other side of Kansas, where Holcomb and Garden City are, they said that they would be gone overnight. They're going to go visit Perry Smith's sister at Fort Scott, Kansas, on account of the fact that she was holding money for $1,500. He claimed this story, actually, to uh, the KBI agents before they cracked him after bracing him, Mm -hmm. and he had him confess. When they talked to Hickok's family, they also said, yeah, he told us he was leaving to get $1,500 that Perry Smith's sister was holding for him. Mm. So sounds like they expected to get an amount of like at or in excess of $1,000. Yeah. And later on at his parole hearing, he's been denied. He's obviously not going to get parole, but the parole board is the one who decides whether to recommend you for commutation of sentence. So Hickok in, I believe it's 64, is brought up before this parole board, and Smith is brought up too, though not at the same time, and they're asking him questions to see whether there's any mitigating circumstance that he shouldn't get hung. Mm. And on this last parole board hearing, where he knows they're not going to recommend him for anything, he tells them, and it's kind of surprising, it's like, why would he tell them this, that they didn't just get $50 from the clutter house. They got $1,000 or around $1,000. And if you're trying to get them to not hang them, what is the logic of telling the parole board? And if if you're trying to show, and by the way, Hickok's story to the parole board, defense attorneys, everything else is I went in there thinking that there was going to be a save. There wasn't Perry Smith. He's crazy. He just started killing everyone. Mm. I didn't know he was going to do it. He did it. I'm innocent of everything except planning a robbery, mm-hmm. right? That is his defense. That's also his mitigating circumstance defense. Mm-hmm. And he's stuck by that story. But why then say like, okay, I lied about something. We actually got a lot more money than I said. Mm-hmm. Like, why lie about that? And uh, just putting it out there, it's possibly because it's true. Yeah. At least in some sense. And then just as a kind of added bit here, Hickok randomly, I believe this was either to Capote or now Harper Lee, who did a lot of like almost all of the interviews of the people around Holcomb, Kansas, and Capote just kind of read them. Uh, Capote didn't do a lot of those himself. But in an interview that I believe was done by her, he starts talking about another guy who's on death row 
there with him in Kansas and says, I really like Dan. He was a nut, not a real nut. Like they keep hollering about him, but you know, just goofy. He was always talking about breaking out of here and making his living as a hired gun. He liked to imagine himself roaming around Chicago or Los Angeles, machine gun inside a violin case, cooling guys. Said he charged a thousand bucks per stiff. So just for the third time, well, before the killings, at the parole board, and just randomly, he's like, "Yeah, one thousand bucks to charge for a body." Yeah, and I can't help but wondering if that's because he may have been paid about one thousand dollars, which is more about like twelve to fourteen thousand in today's money still to do this job. Still pretty cheap to kill a civilian, right? Definitely. You know, it might be operating under the assumption that you're going to be paid a bit more after say safe there is one so so let's let's see if we can try to get some more knowledge of this hidden figure that we have this Mm -hmm. person behind wells so who was someone who could have fed that information about the house because that seems like the most concrete thing we have right maybe he was just a trusting guy who would let uh, his thousand dollars, once again, that number, you know, ride until these, you know, hired felons happen to come by and, and give it to him in prison. Right. After they did the job, he sold them. Put it on your books. All right, put it on the books. But it, more concrete. So that's a possibility, but it's really not possible for him to have known the layout of the new clutter house unless somebody told them. Right. So who had knowledge of the house? So this becomes a difficult thing because a, a lot of people had knowledge of the layout of the clutter house. Mm-hmm. Some of them in intimate detail because this is a, a large farm operation. He has a large family, lots of business associates. By all accounts, all of the you know farm hands and so on are very loyal to clutter. He's a very generous guy. But of course, there's a whole set of people uh, and I've seen a, in documentaries, they're alluded to, but they won't say their names or give much information. Like, for example, a guy had a huge industrial accident, lost his foot yeah. on Clutter's farm. He might have known the inside of the house. There was another guy who you know, swore revenge against him after he was fired. He might have known the inside of the house. And, once it, um, and I'm talking here about the new house, the house they were ultimately yes. murdered in. But it's difficult to say who among any one of those may have come up with this plan or... Mm. been in on it or been brought in on it by someone else now ken lyon who we've repeatedly alluded to as clutter's close business partner associate he'd stayed at the house a number of times now i'm not able to say exactly when he stayed at the house just he was still doing lots of business with clutter Mm -hmm. into 1959 and so it's not unreasonable that he would know where they are the knowledge that's spoken of by hickok that you know, the knowledge that he got from whoever this source was, however, is is very detailed. Like he knew the ages of the clutter children. He knew the age of Kenyon. He knew the age of Nancy or thereabouts. He knew where they were sleeping in the house so that he can control the situation. And even with Ken Lyon, I'm not sure that he would know all that, but I don't know. One person I can't, you know, completely exclude, which really piqued my interest. And I want to be clear that this is not an accusation. I know these people still have family members in Garden City, Kansas, and I'm not saying that. But one thing that just stuck out to me is weird is Paul Helm, who's untrusted farmhand, his wife is also the Clutter family's housekeeper. Mm. She knows all the rooms intimately. She knows everyone's age. And 
likely so does he. The only reason this piques my interest is Paul Helm gives this extremely weird story about two weeks after the murders, um, saying that two Mexicans, mm-hmm. as his words, came to the house looking for work, he thought, mm-hmm. on November 14th, the, the, the day leading up to the night of the murders. Mm-hmm. And he said it exactly when they came in, and he gave a very vivid illustration of who they were, uh, or rather what they looked like. So, and Capote actually wrote this down. Helm informed Al Dewey that at approximately four o'clock on Saturday, November 14th, the day of the murders, a pair of Mexicans, one mustachioed and the other pockmarked, appeared at River Valley Farm. Mr. Helm had seen them knock at the door of the office, which is kind of on the, the west side of the house and is a bit separated from all the living quarters, um, but still connected to the house. He knocked on the door of the office and he saw Herb step outside and talk to them on the lawn and possibly 10 minutes later then watch the strangers walk away looking sulky. Mr. Helm figured they'd come asking for work and we're told there is none. So you have these very like vividly illustrated pair of, of Mexican guys who, mm-hmm. uh, and also they're given a motive yeah. to come back. They, they're, it almost seems like they're set up. Right. The problem is, is that at that exact time, and for hour, an hour before and hours afterwards, Herb Clutter is meeting with the life insurance salesman, who is emphatic that no one came in. Herb Clutter did not break off contact with them to talk to a pair of Mexican guys like that. Yeah. Never happened. Right. So even though there appears to be this kind of red herring of two Mexican migrant killers created by Paul Helm. They're definitely not there. And one should always, of course, like apply Peter's razor. The more innocent way of looking at this is maybe Paul Helm saw these guys or some guys like them on some other day, Mm -hmm. you know, through the magic of bad memory, uh, the trauma of losing your boss and Mm -hmm. ambient background racism was just like, maybe these two migrant Mexicans came in and did it. Right. Because it seems obviously like pointed towards they did it. Yeah. But that stuck with me is Helm did have a close knowledge of the house. After the murders, he ended up working for the Garden City Co-op, where Ken Lyon was uh, still a prominent figure. But obviously, there's nothing even remotely incriminating that points him other than this really weird story um, and his knowledge of the house. And I'm not leveling any accusation, mm-hmm. just reading it out. There are obviously uh, an unknown number of others. This place had yeah. a staff at any given time of like 35 people yeah. at times. Yeah. Especially. There's a number of people. And there's and who knows how many passed through. Right. You know, the way that Wells did. Yeah. Um, who might have a closer knowledge of the house. Well, Wells did the old house. Yeah. Well, Wells did the old house. That's right. Mm-hmm. But we do know that someone among this circle conveyed the information to Wells. Yes. Which requires them to know two things. One, what like as we said, where Clutter's house is and what the inside of it looks like. Yeah. And two, it kind of requires them to know about Wells. Mm. And a, a guy who was employed oh, eleven years earlier at Clutter's home, who was let go or left, and is now at Kansas State Penitentiary. Because mm. in between that, he's like living in like eastern Kansas. He's like in Oswego and stuff. Right. So it requires them to know about Wells and satisfying both those conditions is kind of difficult. So, I mean, I don't think we know who among 
the potential cast of characters would have known both of those things or known how to find wells. Right. But we just know that it is a person. I wasn't born this way. I train myself. I eliminate personal feeling. You're born like everybody else, flesh and blood. You gotta feel. I feel hot. I feel cold. I get sleepy and I get hungry. I feel hot. I feel cold. I get sleepy and I get hungry. turn here to how this played out so once hickok got the job and of course knowing that perry smith was a much more violent person than him and could carry it out had the military training and experience yeah. to do that this is put together but hickok actually does not have a gun mm. uh, has a hunting knife doesn't have a gun mm. very fortuitously however hickok comes to acquire a 12-gauge Savage Model 10 pump-action shotgun. And it's definitely made, you know, it's a long barrel shotgun, mm -hmm. uh, definitely made for pheasant hunting. It literally has a pheasant emblem on the stock. Uh. This is $100 and it's bought brand new. It still has the blue coating on it. Mm. According to In Cold Blood, Richard Hickok buys this like, as kind of like a hot check thing, family line of credit, mm -hmm. and, and puts the family in a, in a real tough position. Right. That didn't happen. According to David Hickok, who's uh, Richard Hickok's brother, mm -hmm. he doesn't remember whether he put it on layaway or bought it all in one lump sum, but he only remembers one day that he walked into the sporting goods store and bought the shotgun as a gift for Richard Hickok, who's his older brother. Mm -hmm. And he remembers making good money at that time. But I find it hard to believe that with, as cash-strapped as the family was, they were struggling with medical bills, among other things, that out of nowhere, David Hickok would say, I'm just going to get a gift for, for Richard. And yeah, was gift it his birthday? No, no. They, Even they, then. They did pheasant hunt yeah. you know, back when they were kids, but it just it seemed so like odd and out of place. Yeah. Just be like, I'm going to cheer him up. He's so mopey with this expensive present of a, of a shotgun. And I'm just suggesting as a possibility, considering that um, David remembers that, that Dick mentioned that he couldn't buy a shotgun, that this was an arranged straw purchase. Yeah. It's a hundred dollar brand new weapon. And of course, the reason it's a, this 12 gauge pheasant hunting shotgun is because of the state of reason Dick probably gave to David, his brother. Right. So 
I'm just suggesting a scenario here that I think is the most likely. And I, I would at least say that this scenario has to be refuted rather than being presumed to be not what happened. Yeah. Richard said, I would like to go hunting with you, but I can't right now. I can't get a gun as I'm a felon on probation. Right. He gives David the money. Yeah. And I say this specifically because there's a passage in his letters where he says that he's really on the hook for having to go through with the clutter job because he already spent some of the money. Mm. Gives David the money. David purchases the gun. And the KBI actually never ran a trace of the gun. Huh. Never found out who purchased it. Never even tried. Right. And uh, did you need to put down ID to buy a gun at that time? Depending on the state. Yeah. At 59 in yeah. Kansas, I don't think you did. Right. Especially for like a hunting gun. But they um, could find out where it was sold from. Right. Um, due to the inference serial numbers and the fact that a lot of shops would record it. Some were better at record keeping than others. Right. Obviously. And you figured David maybe wouldn't want to admit that he did a straw purchase. Right. For a gun that wound up committing the state's most famous massacre. Um, Probably not. He still but, feels guilty about it to this day. Yeah. And, even and though it's, it's not his fault. And yeah. it's a little bit less bad if you say, okay, I got it as a present, as opposed to I was trying to circumvent my felonious brother's uh, inability to purchase a gun for himself. Yeah. And to be clear, you know, it does just with the type of gun that he got and what they initially used it for, they really did go pheasant. Hunting. Yeah, sure. It seems obvious that he didn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. He, he didn't think that he was buying Yeah, I'm not trying to make implications yet. on him either. Just saying, yeah. Yeah. David does have a memory of Hickok saying after the purchase and after he started practicing with the shotgun in the backyard, uh, maybe our money troubles are over. Mm -hmm. Of course, with uh, Richard Hickok still existing medical bills from his car accident and their dad's mounting health problems and his inability to work much more. That hit home. But of course, at that time, David was like, what's it going to do? <laughs> right. Now, they did take uh, this shotgun and they actually went to western Kansas. Now, north, they went west, way west of Olathe where they live. And to the area of Kansas where Garden City is, but a bit north mm -hmm. of there to go pheasant hunting, as they did back in the day. And they did that in fall of that year, around November, which places them kind of in the area for the next component of this plot, which I like to call the, uh, the pre-murder meeting. Now, I'm reading here from a KBI report that was conveyed to them by the Garden City Police Department. And I need to emphasize this. At this time, there was no description of Hickok, no description of Smith. There was no description of the car that they were in. There's nothing to contaminate these witnesses. So this guy named Andy, name redacted to this day of Garden City, contacted Captain, also name redacted for some reason, on November 18th of 1959. Uh, that's just three days after the murders, mm -hmm. and advised that on November 11th, 1959, four days before the murders, he was hunting pheasants with a friend south of Holcomb, Kansas, and that around 4.15 p.m. on this date, a pheasant flew across the North River Bridge, and they observed an old, beat-up Fleetline Chevrolet parked just north of the Holcomb Bridge. This car was a faded color, had a black license plate, and it contained three rough-looking individuals. I'm not going to read on this whole thing, but to summarize a little bit, 
these guys see the pheasant flying by and assume, oh, these guys are scouting out for pheasant. We're mm -hmm. going to let them get this one. Mm -hmm. They come back, and these three rough-looking individuals are still sitting in the car yeah. in the middle of this fucking field, mm -hmm. which, as you can imagine, becomes to look suspicious. If they're yeah. not there to hunt pheasant, and they're what just sitting, it? being surly in this car, mm -hmm. what are they meeting there to do? Yeah, That's just south of the clutter farm. Now, as it happens, Hickok's car at this time and the car that they used to drive to and from the clutter home and murder the family was a Chevy fleet line. Mm -hmm. And it was a very late model, faded and rusty in the sun. So then the next problem is, of course, okay, who are they meeting with? Because it's three people, not just Nick and Hickok. Yeah. Could this be whoever was setting them up? to do this job basically right because it's not floyd wells he's still in lansing yeah so it's someone they're meeting with on the outside in a place that neither of them has ever been before mm -hmm. that is just just south of the clutter farm mm -hmm. now i'll say this with a bit of a caveat here you know we don't have a close description of what any of these guys look like so we're not able to say like oh this definitely was smith and hickok but mm -hmm. it is hickok's car mm -hmm. or apparently it's hickok's car the same type of car Yes. Same make, model, color. Yes. Now, four days later, of course, the murders happen. At night, they arrive. And we've talked about this on episode one and talking about the KBI scenario. But I just wanted to go through some aspects of this crime that really suggest something wrong with the theory of the KBI and Capote. And Smith says in his letters to Machinations, he, quote, had to make it look like a robbery. And this is, of course, in keeping with the scenario that he's a hired killer, wants to make it look like some schmuck came in, burgled the house, and killed the family. But in keeping with this, the only robbery that happens at this house of cash is stuff that is done almost theatrically and in plain view. Clutter's empty wallet is left in plain view on a bed. The purse, I believe, belonging to Bonnie is robbed of its cash and is laying open on a table. Mm. And conspicuously, their jewelry is not taken. Mm. And this has led people to kind of really read into this, almost like the way they do with the Manson murders. Of like, maybe this wasn't about right. robbery. Maybe it wasn't about a safe. It was more about, like, their deep, dark, sick desires. Mm. You know, and maybe, but like the official story and even how this all came about is for money. So why are these items just right. robbed and left in plain view? Yeah. As if to say, this is a robbery. There were two items that were stolen, though, which are rarely remarked upon other than to say these were the two items that were stolen. A transistor radio belonging to Kenyon, uh, the son, and a pair of binoculars. And... I don't think we were just like stolen randomly to like hawk off later, although they did hawk mm -hmm. them in Mexico. I think they took them because those serve a very useful purpose if you're two killers, which is you on a radio, you can hear if there's news reports about you. Yes. And what's being done. And on binoculars, you can see if people are far away. Yes. So if there are just two items that are pretty damn useful if you just committed an act of murder right and believe the heat's on you or, or maybe you don't know that transistor murder or transistor radios are different from like cd radios <laughs> and so you think you can you know, like listen in on uh, like scanning the police yeah yeah maybe. which for all i know transistor radios can do but it doesn't seem like the, if i couldn't figure it out well, it's, de it's definitely not a police scanner but you know at yeah. least you'll be able to see like like 
when it was reported, right? Right. But they'd be, they, presumably they're going away in a car and could listen to the car radio. Maybe not all cars had radios back then. Yeah, I don't know that this Chevy Feline had a radio. Okay, okay. But maybe you're right. Mm-hmm. One thing that's not only not in ink called blood, and but is actually not something that's admitted by either Smith or Hickok, is how seminal fluid semen mm-hmm. got on Buddy Clutter's gown. This is something that even the, the KBI puzzled over and thought that they had messed up, that they thought it was semen, it was actually something else. Because there were no signs of sexual assault, not only on Bonnie Clutter, who, as we know, was older, what had become a recluse, mm-hmm. but there wasn't any sort of sexual assault on Nancy Clutter either, mm-hmm. who Hickok, for his part, and in the sixth way possible, said that he had intended to rape mm-hmm. and that Perry Smith stopped him. As it turns out, the KBI sent off Bonnie Clutter's gown after initially finding that there was something that looked like semen to the FBI, and they sent back a report simply stating, yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Considering that that didn't come from Herb Clutter, they hadn't had any sort of relations like that, and Bonnie was very open about that with her family, it leaves the question of what happened here. Mm. How did this turn into a, a, a... a sex crime or at least a sexually inflected crime mm. when neither of them admits that yeah and I, I mean there there's it could be any one of scenarios even gary mcavoy doesn't have a, a clear answer on this i think it might make a bit more sense if one of these killers is is guarding the family mm-hmm. with a shotgun another one's supposed to be say looking for a safe or loading a safe and then it's left alone Right. To, I don't know, jack off. Right. One kind of speculative notion that I had is that Perry Smith, who's very, very sensitive about these sort of things, Mm -hmm. uh, may have been patrolling the home, looking for the safe, or if the safe existed, uh, you know, loading a a small wall safe in the car, come back and find Dick Hickok doing his business. And then at that point went nuts. Mm. Um, killed Bonnie Clutter and then killed the rest of the family. Yeah. The reason I say this is because in spite of both the confessions saying that the first person they killed was Herb Clutter, when the coroner took the liver temperatures of the family and the liver temperature goes down in proportion to the body weight at a certain rate, and medical examiners debate about how to calculate it, but the order that they found was that Bonnie Clutter was killed first mm-hmm. and then Nancy and then Herb and Kenyon. Even though the order that the killers say they killed them was the exact opposite. Now, obviously, the the normal way of looking at this is well, you did the numbers wrong, dude. Mm. Medical examiner's wrong. Bonnie was killed last. Why would they say otherwise? But maybe one reason they said otherwise was how the explosive moment of the murders came about was, or at least when they came about, had something to do with. The semen on her gown. Yeah. Now that said, there's a complete consensus that the way that they that this crime became not one of just killing clutter or robbing a safe, but became one of killing the entire family, was that they had agreed to leave no witnesses. Now Hickok said that he and Perry Smith decided this while they were at the home, just like spur of the moment, decided there were no witnesses. He said that in a letter to Nations. At trial and everywhere else, he said that Perry just went nuts. Perry Smith said he, for his part, that he didn't expect that they would have to kill him, but then Hickok told them to. 
and they may have even just kind of like blanked out as he did it. <laughs> Hickok's brother, and he may have been influenced by reading in cold blood for one thing, remembers him having just gotten the gun saying no witnesses and kind of like a macho style while cocking the gun. I, I mean, what I lean towards, honestly, is that Hickok always planned on there being no witnesses. Yeah. And I do actually credit Capone that. But also, I think that Perry Smith also planned on there being no witnesses. Yeah. Because that they, they did this as a cooperative thing the entire time in terms of Perry would shoot his the shotgun at close range on these people. And Hickok would be picking up the shell as he pumped it out. Yeah. And then they went to the next room. It's not like either of them didn't know what the other one was doing. Right. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, given what we know about them, this is the kind of thing that they would converge on. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, too, is if this if this was, as I think, a murder job from the start, it's one thing to leave witnesses for a robbery. Yeah. For a safe. Mm -hmm. And just try to get away. And yeah. they're hogtied. It's another thing to leave witnesses for a murder. Yes. And that's actually one of the bigger things that militates in favor of this having been a murder job the whole time. That they always plan to leave no witnesses. Yeah. You know, that said, um, this is still speculation until we get to what, frankly, I think is the hardest evidence in favor of there being another person who met with and planned this job with Smith and Hickok. And that is the sighting of them in Cimarron, Kansas. Now, Cimarron, Kansas is just east of Holcomb and Garden City. Mm -hmm. If you're driving along the road to try to go through Dodge City and then off east, all the way to Olathe, Kansas, you will pass through Cimarron. It's a very, very small town. Even, uh, even by Kansas standards. Even by Kansas standards, it's a small town. And there in Cimarron, Kansas, at a place called the Western Cafe, two separate, very credible witnesses see people who match the description, and I mean really match the description, mm -hmm. of Smith and Hickok along with a third person. So I'll just read it aloud. On December 15th of 1959, on December 15th, 1959, these law enforcement officers who were writing this report made a trip to Cimarron, Kansas to check on information received on December 2nd from a guy named Fred Volker, who's the night marshal in Cimarron, Kansas. No police department. We just have like night watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in Cimarron, Kansas. This information was in regard to three men who stopped in the Western Cafe at Cimarron, sometime between 2 and 3 o'clock a.m. on Sunday morning, November 15th, just after the murders. Marshall Volker was interviewed and stated that he was in the cafe sitting on a booth in the east side. That three subjects, one short, dark-haired, and heavyset, two light-haired individuals entered the cafe and sat on the three stools on the north end of the counter, which is on the west side of the cafe. Mr. and I love this guy's name, Squirt Kramer. Mm -hmm. The tavern operator in Cimarron was sitting on the counter at, at the counter, and the three subjects asked Kramer if he knew where they could get gasoline. Kramer, in turn, asked Volker if he could get in the station to get gas. The, there's the no one, station? No, the oh, gas, gas station. station. Yeah. Volker left the cafe and went across the street to the standard station. You can tell how small a town this is, given that it's just like, hey, can I get in the gas station? Yeah, sure. Here's the case. He stated that the three individuals hurried out of the cafe, got in their car, and drove east on the highway. He said that the waitress at the cafe indicated to him through the window that the three had failed to get their hamburgers, which they had ordered to go. A short time later, these individuals came back into Cimarron from the east, making a U-turn in front of the cafe where they stopped while one of the individuals was, ran in the cafe for the hamburgers. Yeah. Volker jumped the driver about making the U-turn, but the driver said that he was not from Cimarron, so didn't know there was a law against making U-turn in the middle of the street. 
Volker said that these subjects were driving a 1949 or 50 Chevrolet two-door Fleetline sedan, dark gray in color, mm. just like at the pheasant hunting sighting and just like Hickok's car. They believe that the license tag is a 59 Kansas Wendock County 67 or 57 remainder of numerals unknown. But I would say to you, listener, in case you're about to look up stuff, Hickok switches out a lot of license plates. He's a hot car guy. Yeah. We talked to Mr. Squirt Kramer, and his story was substantially the same as related to us by Mr. Volker, the night marshal. One of the individuals had a scar on the left side of his face, just like Richard Hickok. Both Kramer and Volker indicated that the dark, heavy-set individual had a bad leg, which they thought to be artificial. They indicated that they observed this individual limping and saw some type of harness under his clothing, which made them think the guy had an artificial leg. Volker indicated that all three of these men were rough-looking and had a dirty, unkept appearance. They were bad dudes. Yeah. Now, the KBI went back and got a more extensive description, including that the individual who was uh, one of the individuals who was more light-haired, had this ducktail haircut mm -hmm. and the scar, which is exactly how Richard Hancock looks. Mm -hmm. So in other words, we have three guys, one of whom is kind of heavyset, smaller, and has a bad leg. That's Perry Smith. Yeah. The other guy, ducktail haircut, light hair, scar on his left side. That's Richard Hickok. They're driving the Fleetline sedan. So the question, of course, is who the fuck is this third guy? Mm -hmm. Now, he's described as possibly Spanish, 21 to 25, 5 foot 7, sandy, blonde, bushy hair, a white shirt with a design on it, black shoes, and no coat. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not exactly some like a big, flashy, pretty yeah. guy. He's, but also not not totally like the local farm guys. No, he's right? like there's something foreign seeming about him. He's also not wearing a coat and it's cold out. No, he's some punk kid. Yeah. Right. And I don't mean that in the KSB Lansing way. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say there's like a few important points from this sighting. There's two separate, credible, uninterested witnesses who corroborate each other. And this sighting was before Hickok and Smith were arrested with no description of the suspects going around the public. Kramer, Squirt Kramer actually became sheriff of Semerville later on, I guess when they got a sheriff's office. Two of the three men match non-generalized, unique descriptions that tack on to Smith and Hickok. The car matches the description of Hickok's car driven at the time, the Chevy Fleetline. Yeah. Hickok, in his own interrogation in Las Vegas, inadvertently corroborated this by originally saying in his confession that they had stopped by a late night diner after the murders. He drops that later on. Find out, you can infer why. Tacking on to this at Dodge City, Kansas, the KBI finds a man named Ben Hughes, an employee at the Phillips 66 station, is on the south side of the highway when you go into Dodge City again from the west. He also saw three individuals drive in in a 1949 or 50 dark gray Chevy two-door Fleetline sedan. And this is the weird part. He indicated that it was pulling a United rental trailer from, trailer from Kansas City, Missouri. And I should point out that sighting at and in Cimarron, Kansas, which is just a bit to the west, so prior to that Phillips 66 station, they also see the car carrying a small two-wheeled trailer being pulled by the subject's automobile. So you have this kind of convergent identification of at least three people, you know, not sharing stories. Mm -hmm who tack on to there being three people in a, this late model Chevy Fleetline sedan towing a trailer. Mm. Two of whom 
look like Smith and Hickok. Yeah. Now, later on, when they, they were talking to like the kids of these guys, like Squirt Kramer's kid, for example, Gary McAvoy was talked to him and he was like, well, yeah, he, my dad thought it was them. Yeah. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. straight with you on that. And if you put this, put these puzzle pieces with what Hickok said in his letters, what you get is that this guy seems to be Roberts, mm-hmm. the guy that they were supposed to meet with after the murders, the person who was supposed to meet up with as part of this job. Gary McAvoy did some work in the KBI records and did find that they had looked up all the hotels around to see if anybody was suspicious or if any of the killers had checked into hotels. And they found two people named Roberts uh, in hotels near Garden City. One was just written in as D. Roberts, and the other one was written as Dick Roberts from Pueblo, Colorado, and listed a car with a Colorado plate. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that, uh, it, both of these guys, separate hotels, check out at the same time. It's the day before the murders, November 13th. I couldn't help but wonder if Dick Roberts is actually just Richard Hickok using yeah. the name of the code name that was given to him. Right. Part of the reason I thought that is Richard Hickok actually had been through Playboy Colorado and it's still in cars right there, yeah. including plates. So if we assume that this guy is Roberts, or at least a guy working with Roberts, who meets up with them for or at least after the murders in Cimarron and then is sided mm-hmm. with them at Dodge City, what does this tell us about Roberts? Right? We have his description. He's like sandy blonde hair, possibly Spanish. It's pretty vague. But what we do know is that he had a prearranged meeting at or near an all-night diner. So they have prior contact with this guy, either remotely, like on the phone, letter, or in person. Roberts has no car at the diner, and he entered with Hickok and Smith and left in their car, and he obviously wasn't brought onto the scene of the clutter murders, Mm -hmm. so he had to have been driven to the diner by someone else. Right, and the diner's not exactly in a location that somebody's going to walk there. Right. That's a great point. It's yeah. it's like it's just off highway. Highway. Yeah. Exactly. Classic 1950s. Yeah, yeah. Hayseed bird diner in the middle of nowhere. Mm. Hickok and Smith then drove Roberts to the Dodge City area. And this is a, a part where again I'm confessing that I'm speculating, but given his age, 21 to 25, mm. you know, no coat, no nothing, just a guy walking around in a teeth. So this is speculation here, but I think they're likely meeting Roberts just because of his age and the fact that he just kind of seems like a really low on the totem pole guy, just a young guy, T-shirt, Yeah, meeting with them. I think they're meeting up with, I, I think he's a gopher for yeah. someone else. Yeah. Probably who commissioned the job. And this seems to me just to be a good criminal practice when you're dealing sure. with two people who just killed or even just robbed. Yeah, someone. and you know they're kind of loose cannon. They're loose cannons, they're two felons, which is to send this kid out, confirm the job's complete, and then to tell them where the meeting location is. Yeah. Which wouldn't be surprised if it's in Dodge City. Yeah. The rented trailer and safe, which seems to have really been attached to the car, was one that I found strange again that neither of the killers mentioned because that seems to be the thing that you would definitely want to bring along if you're trying to get a safe. And the question becomes, like, why didn't they just say they rented the trailer, they thought they were going to take a safe from this house, and then they had to ditch the trailer somewhere? I also kind of don't get why, okay, so did they, I guess one question I would have is, 
did they know going in, in every version of the story that Herb Clutter would be there when they went in? Because if I ran, if I were like a criminal who wanted to get in and out quickly of this kind of home invasion, I instead of messing around trying to grab a big heavy safe and take it with me, I would put my gun on the safe's owner, have them open it, dump the cash into sacks, do it that way. Definitely. And, and there's there's kind of two points that go to your question, which is one, per his confession, Hickok uh, drove up to the Clutter Farm with Perry Smith. And when he got to the part where um, there's a, a kind of farmhand guest house that's separate from the main house, kind of mm-hmm. like a cottage, yeah. where a guy named Alfred Stookline lived. And he's because Alfred Stuckline's kids were sick. He was tending them all night. Uh, the lights were on. Mm. So when he passed by that, they had a moment of absolute freak out, mm. knowing that there were people up and awake mm. uh, at that time. But yeah, you would think that he would want to go ahead and, and order the safe open yeah. by the safe owner. Now, in his account, of course, they asked about the safe and Herbert Clutter said, there is no safe. Yeah. And that's just what happened. Yeah. So the idea here is that Richards and possibly his employer. Oh, Roberts? You mean? Roberts, yes. Yeah. Roberts and possibly his employer send along the rented trailer. Who, who rented the trailer? Don't okay. know. Like, I... Now they say tra- that they say that uh, the the not the Cimarron sign, but the Dodge City sighting has the trailer visibly from a company in Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah. Uh, now it could have been rented or stolen a long time right. ago. That, that can't be excluded, but it could have just been them because Olathe, Kansas, is much closer to Kansas City. Yeah. And um, and the idea was was the trailer with them when they went to the clutter house yeah that's a, a okay. good question but there's no sighting of them around there there's no sighting of the chevy fleet line at you know, right. two o'clock in the morning the first place it shows up the rented trailer i'm just trying to remember is cimarron case in cimarron at between three and four a.m so either so and and obviously roberts couldn't have brought it because he he was dropped off well i guess whoever dropped him off could have dropped off the trailer too right so i mean one thing i was thinking is that Okay, if somebody set this job up, used a safe as an inducement, yeah, didn't send them in with burglary tools, right? As far as anyone knows, no, no so burglary tools. You could easily see a scenario where they send in these unstable, violent cons without burglary tools to do a burglary, home invasion burglary. They bring the trailers like a prop, right? Because they know there's no safe. But they don't want these crazy killers to think to think that they always knew there was no safe. They want to have a prop to say we were prepared to, to open take, the safe for to you. open the safe for you. Yeah. No, I I think that has to be it. Yeah. So in that case, it wouldn't be that they sent in these guys to to put a gun on Clutter, have Clutter open the safe, and then take the contents, and then take the contents. They would have they sent in these guys on the idea that they could take the safe, even though they didn't have any burglary tools, I guess either because they were kind of dumb or that they expected the safe to be like, they just didn't, they expected it to be more mobile or something. I don't know, a lighter that, safe. But now that you've you've talked it through with me, there's a third possibility suggested. Yeah. Which is they sent them with this trailer 
or told them to get a trailer yeah. to take the safe and have it cracked open later because this was always a job to kill her clutter. Right. Yeah. So if there's any hemming and hawing or I'm not going to tell you the combo of the safe, I'm not going to open the safe for you, I don't know where the key is, they're just supposed to kill them. Yeah. Take the safe mm -hmm. and walk away. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And get it blown later. Yeah. Now, for those who find my kind of in your inferences that they did meet with someone in the, who was a part of this as a, as a criminal job, the only counterfactual that I can find that would fit these facts and still fit with the Capote scenario is what I can only call the My Cousin Vinny scenario, which is similar to the robbery of My Cousin Vinny. Mm. You've seen that. A group of nearly identically described people with near identical injuries passed on the same route, going the same direction at the same time in a near identical car early in the morning, just after the murders. I mean, a guy with a fucked up leg who's friends with a lighter haired guy with a scar on the same side of his face, <laughs> driving a late model Chevy fleet line, <laughs> faded in the same way, going east at the same time. That seems a little impossible to me, mm -hmm. which is why I'm pretty firm in saying that I think this is Smith and Hickok meeting with a guy directly after the murders. And what could only have been a prearranged meeting. Yeah. So if they did get paid, mm -hmm. right, what happened to the money? Now, one kind of piece of evidence that they didn't get paid and really didn't get much money out of this job, didn't get $1,000, whatever Hickok says later on, is immediately after the murders, like within three days in Kansas City. Hickok writes a bunch of bad checks to acquire kind of easily resellable merchandise like radios and sells these off for cash, making about $200. And later on, the KBI interviews merchants around Kansas City who get burned by these bad checks that Hickok makes. I think this is definitely in favor of them not having gotten paid and just mm. coming out with nothing on the job, but it could also just be them shoring up the stack right. as they go lay low in Mexico for a while. Yeah. Now, the original plan is to have enough money to buy a boat. Mm. Um, which requires a substantial amount of cash, of course. But if you're buying a kind of rusted, not great boat, Mexico yeah. in 1959, I don't know how much that would cost. But something that you brought to my attention, Peter, uh, after I described to you their next stop, which was to go lay low in Mexico after these murders and drive to the coast, is that they spend a bunch of time in whorehouses. Yeah. Or sex worker workplaces yeah and as you pointed out peter it's not hard to part gringos with their money in a place like that oh no no uh you know not trying to cast aspersions on the on the people of mexico i've never been i hear they're very hospitable but you know if you're if you're two gringo low lives hanging out at the sex worker workplace i, I think it's perfectly fine to you know uh part them from their money yeah i think that's fair yeah so in other words, I don't think if they got, say, $1,000 right. as payment for, for killing clutter and turning over a it state. It wouldn't last that long. It wouldn't last that long. But these guys aren't known for their impulse control. Yeah. And by the time they go from this coastal town to Mexico City, they're definitely light of cash because it's Capote related later on. They make a plan to rob a guy. Uh, that plan fell through, but then they need to pass more hot checks. I don't think they just had $200. Yeah, I think the weight of the evidence is that they did have more money than that and could have easily drank, drugged, and paid prostitutes yeah. all the way through that stack of money. For sure. Now, originally, I listeners, I did have this whole segment on 
these two guys trip through Florida and Miami and the unsolved Walker family murders and why I lean towards them not having committed the murder. Right, so that's a whole separate set of murders. We would have to do three more podcasts on it. And you don't want that, do you? We've had enough, enough killing. So let me tell you just a succinct ending scenario for the Florida part, which is after burning out their cash in Mexico, Smith and Hickok drove all the way to Florida to spend the winter. Mm-hmm. They spent it in Miami Beach, in Miami Beach, checked into a hotel for a whole week, paid up, and then suddenly departed. Mm. Now, this has led people to think that they were involved in would be a little bit difficult for them to evolve in with the evidence that's been collected. The Walker family murders, a pretty, frankly, considerably more brutal mm. murder of a farm family that, you know, was not prosperous. It's just yeah. a farmhand in Sarasota, Florida. But I think they may have left for another job, which was described by Capote in a later interview. Which brings us to a bit of evidence about who did who would hit. be giving them jobs in Kansas after the Clutter murders? Right, because jobs aren't just done. They're paid for. They're yes. bought. Capote said in a later interview in 1967, Smith and Hickok had two other murders that aren't mentioned in the book. Neither of them came off. One victim, which we just talked about, was a man who ran a restaurant in Mexico City. A Swiss. The other victim was a man they didn't even know, like the Clutters. He was a banker in a small Kansas town. Dick kept telling Perry that, sure, they might have failed on the clutter score, but this Kansas banker job was absolutely for certain. They were going to kidnap him and ask for ransom that the plan was, as you might imagine, to murder him right away. And when they went back to Kansas completely broke, that was the main plot they had in mind. What actually saved the banker, Capote says, and derailed this whole plot is, believe it or not, Richard Hickok got offered a job in a meatpacking plant. Mm. Which just kind of shows you where their heads are at. Yeah. Right? They're doing these crazy violent jobs, and you kind of build up this notion in your head that like Yeah, they're pure desperados. They're, they're pure, pure desperados. They're they're psychopaths. They've got yeah. that taste for blood, gone yeah. blood simple. Mm. But the moment that Hickok gets a job at a fucking meatpacking plant, it's not a nice job no. and pretty dangerous. He's like, fuck this desperado yeah. shit. I'm holding down a job and getting three square. Mm. And, you know, whatever supposed... A different kind of blood. Yeah, and whatever supposed, like, kind of, like, uh, you know, homosexual undertone Mm. bond that these two are supposed to have, he's willing to just be like, yeah, no, I'll take the job of the meatpacking plant. Yeah, see ya. Peace. Yeah, he didn't offer you a job, did he, Perry? But obviously, the well, clearly, the important part of this is the hell are they doing with a job on a banker in a small Kansas town who they don't even know? Right. Where did that job come from? Mm. We we don't know. For sure. We don't know for right, sure. He doesn't say. But we know one thing about this, which is it, this didn't come from Floyd Wells. Yeah. You know, Dick Hickok never mentions anything about Floyd Wells sending that. Yeah. Which brings us again back to Clutter. Mm. Because Clutter was a guy who, like many farmers who actually made it in this economy, was reliant on banks and bankers and these kind of small, intimate relationships uh, between farmers and credit unions that turns this whole machine and makes sure that he doesn't go bankrupt from year to year Mm. uh, if his crops get wiped out or whatever. Clutter 
was able to take out these large loans of course of business credit and debt is still be part of that game in this change agro-industrial landscape mm. lion ken lion his good friend uh was a farmer who moved into the banking side with both the co-op and network of farm credit banks in the area at the time of the murders he was actually a bank president in Wichita, although he lived outside that in a small Kansas town, mm -hmm. and still had land in Holcomb and Garden City. Now, I'm going to make the case here with a couple of circumstantial bits that this banker from a small Kansas town was likely Ken Lyon, and that the reason he was involved is because Ken Lyon may very well have been the procurer of this plot. And this is something that's implied by Gary McAvoy, and I want to note that I am not alleging myself. I'm just saying it is alleged. And these are the facts that were laid out by McAvoy and in the KBI files. Potter's debt, admittedly, was owned, owed to unknown people. We know that he had a lot. Mm -hmm. It's hard to see, from my point of view, how Lyon was not one of these unknown uh, people because he was Clutter's longtime business partner. In fact, at one point, he owned over 400 acres of River Valley Farm, Clutter's own land. Lyon had actually been the one to advise Clutter to sell off a third of his farm due to the financial straits he was facing in the lead up to the murders in spring of 1959. So what interest or leverage would he have if he wasn't one of Clutter's major creditors? Yeah. Now, if, as seems just apparent to be the case, the Clutter's farm was facing decline, he would be default on loans from Lyon. And the most valuable asset he had, his farm, would slowly be parceled off and sold away yeah. as he continued to maintain his family, his lifestyle, yeah. continue to try to farm on it. And in other words, ruin for Clutter at least might turn into a bad thing, if not ruin for Lyon, yeah. his banker. Uh, should be worth noting there were also gas rights on the farmland that Clutter was using to kind of just get himself free gas and free mm. electricity yeah. to use on the farm, but also might be sold off for a higher price right. if he wasn't using that farm. Yeah. Now, of course, it's one thing to keep the assets of a friend afloat. Um, it's another thing if your so-called friend is having an affair with your wife. Mm. And what we know from the KBI files is at least since 1957 or possibly just in 1957, Clutter was seen smooching with, dancing with, and going off to a hotel room mm. with Ken Lyons' wife, Mildred. Lyons was the executor of Clutter's estate in the event of his death. Now, for our listeners who haven't been involved in trust and estate stuff, the first thing that gets paid out of the estate, as far as the court's concerned, are the debts to creditors, unless mm. it's protected by law, like a homestead law or something mm. like that. If you were alive, you can pay yourself and your family first and kind of decide which debts you're going to pay. If you're dead, it is the bank and the creditors to get paid first, mm. uh, even if it means selling off and auctioning off your property to do it. So this is the theory. This is the hypothesis, because this is a way out of a financial bind for Lion by a guy who used to be his friend and slept with his wife. Mm. Lion decided that if Clutter died, he could, as executor, liquidate his estate and get rid of the slow motion defaulting loan, toxic asset that was a problem, and also a problem in his own marriage by paying it off with Clutter's own estate. Lyon would likely know the layout and so on of Clutter's home. And if we're to envision this scenario, I, the way I see it is that he would have had to contact some type of like sleazy PI type. Mm. I got a job for you. <laughs> 
who would have looked around for people who had a project against clutter or who might want to take up the job to farm it out himself. And Floyd Wells' name came up either from Lyon or from people, other people he talked to as someone who might be willing to do that. Finds Floyd Wells in KSP Lansing and gives him the job. And then in this version, yes, is he the one, this, this cutout, who makes the hit on Lions that brings Hickok and Smith back to Kansas? It, on the idea that, you know, the, the clutter murders could be traced back. It's hard to say, but it does look like it's a tying up of loose ends, right? Mm. Or maybe if someone else was double-crossed or Lion didn't pay out. Now, do we know if Lion knew about the insur insurance, life insurance policy? Probably not, right? No. Because he had only got, uh, because Clutter only got it that day. I mean, he would have been able to find out about it afterwards. Sure. The of the estate. Now, that insurance doesn't go into the estate. It bypasses yeah, it. Because, yeah. But it I'm sure he would have been able to find out about it from the kids. So who, who did that life insurance wind up going to? It wound up going to Clutter's eldest two daughters. Right, family. because they were still, yes, there was yeah, other Yeah, and, and they obviously are completely cleared of yes. yeah, yeah. involvement. Or now, are they? <laughs> now, obviously, uh, I would find it hard to countenance the line theory. There's no history of violence or plots or anything like that. And frankly, to just be honest with you, rich people often don't do this type of thing. Right. But professional killers have been hired before mm. for alas. Mm. Um, and I would find it hard to count this theory were not for the fact that what else is there to draw these two men into a small Kansas town to kidnap a banker, right? Extort him and kill him. Yeah. Now there's of course the possibility that there's a an unknown party with the grudge against both Clutter and Floyd Wells, say mm. someone who's just really pissed off at the Garden City Co-op. Right. Can't discount that either. No. But they would still have had to kind of fulfill these requirements here to get somebody who knows the inside of the home, knows the ages of the kids, and knows about Floyd Wells to get him the information. Mm -hmm. So, like I said in the beginning here, we, you... we've stripped away, I think, the, the true crime narrative, mm -hmm. the mythological narrative, mm -hmm. as I like to think about it, that this is just a case about evil mixing with desperation. Evil hicks. Evil hicks driving around the country doing evil, mm -hmm. something yeah. about losers. Yeah. And what we're left with here is something very much motivated by material considerations. Mm. But uh, try as we might, I don't think we're ever going to be able to find who the actor was, like who, who pulled the strings. Mm. We just know that there is a connecting thread. And that it usually these connecting threads come down to, if not direct monetary relationships, then at least something to do with one's material stake in their own survival and in the community. Yeah, because what brought Hickok and Smith to there is that they were so broke that Hickok was willing to take a job in a meatpacking plant more, rather than continue yeah. doing this gangster shift. Yeah. And 
from the other point of view, you have a different kind of desperation of a highly leveraged farmer. Mm. Wound up so tight yeah. for so long. And it paid off so much until all of a sudden it didn't. Exactly. Yeah, I just want to note that, the, you know, the KBI for their part in this, and this is something that I was really conflicted by, and maybe we'll conclude on, on this, but the KBI for their part in this kind of treats this as an incontested myth. Mm-hmm. It's just a recruiting tool for them. It's a publicity tool. We got them, et cetera. But they use that to actually block a lot of people, including Sarah Thor authorities, investigating whether Smith and Hickok had handed stuff there, mm-hmm. whether to clear them mm-hmm. or not, just to shore up uh, a true crime story. So there's real consequences of this myth, which is we can't approach this like the scientific detective, right? right. We can't approach this like the continental op because no. that wall of myth, a lot of people have a grand interest in it. Yeah. The sad thing for me is that if you look at these files, you can see really patient civil service work mm-hmm. done by public civil servants for, you know, pulling midnight hours. I mean, uh, Harold Nye was a was actually a, a full-on narcoleptic detective mm-hmm. who's pulling all these hours going out to you know, bumfuck places. You mean in Tomniac? No, no, I mean in narcoleptic. Oh, you no. fall asleep at the wheel. Oh, no. Uh, he was pulling these hours of going out to places like Cimarron, Kansas right. and stuff like that to check out every single lead he could, yeah. only to have it be sealed up and, and locked away in a file just so that the official truth can be this thing dreamed up by the New Yorker. Hmm. All right. So on that note, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this. It is a mystery. We didn't solve it. No. Surprise. But we kind of unsolved it. Yeah, that's and that's all. That's just as good. That's just as good. Till next time, listeners, subscribe to us on Patreon, patreon.com slash people's history of violence. See you next time. Bye-bye. Stay sexy. Don't get murdered.